Okay, welcome back to Wage of Cinema. Now, uh, the new segment that we're doing here is uh, something certainly a little bit different than what we've done before. Now, in the past year, we had uh, The List, where uh, Andrew and I uh, gave each other movies to watch that we had seen before, but the other person hadn't seen. And But this year, we're doing something a little different. Uh, actually, a lot different. This is possibly a little bit crazy but you know we always have to try new crazy things to keep up in this crazy world so um what we're gonna do is something which was inspired by uh uh, matt sloan from the welcome to the basement show uh and it's called the cinema immersion tank and what andrew and i are gonna do uh is we're gonna alternate uh show to show i'm starting in this episode and what we're gonna do is watch a movie uh, we, we each pick them. We have a list of movies that were that we've seen. Some of us, we, some of them are movies we've seen before. Some are not. Uh, we switch them up a little bit. But the idea is to immerse ourselves in the movies to the point where fully loaded cinema experience. And uh, the idea is watching a movie once a day for five days in a row. And at that point, you have watched a movie. You've probably watched the movie more times than the filmmaker has watched the movie. Possibly. Um, so, with that in mind, I'm going to start off in this first episode. And the film that I am talking about tonight is Brian De Palma's Blowout. And so, let's begin. first sound you hear in Blowout, and it's crucial you first hear it and not see anything, it's over a black screen, is the thudding of a heartbeat. The second sound, which I call in the second viewing, is something like a monster or the ringing of someone's brain. Immediately, you, the viewer, are thrust into suspense without even really knowing why or how. Then the image comes up. It's a long, unbroken Steadicam shot, back when the Steadicam was a relatively new innovation of the POV of a killer. How do we know this? Well, the POV is of a figure scanning around a house full of sorority girls dancing and keeping up uh, other girls laid or something like that. This is confirmed in a few moments. I'll get to that soon. And a knife is revealed, and it stabs into a cop who is peering through the window. So now the killer's POV peers through. It's that delicious period where not only were girls in transition from the late 70s into the early 80s, but so were slasher movies, stealing wholesale from John Carpenter's technique. There are two Steadicam shots that open Brian De Palma's movie. The first outside, peering through the windows, it concludes with one woman, mid-coitus, on top of a man, notices someone outside, leaps off and tries to see who it is. And the second is indoors, as the killer, uh, as the, uh, as the killer keeps peering through girls dancing to rock music. This shot hits its crescendo, I hasten to say climax, but I suppose it's that as well, when the killer goes into the bathroom, we see him pose for a couple of seconds in the mirror, looking like a slightly more demented-looking Stephen King, probably unintentional, and then uh, go to the all-important shower where helpless girl is lathering up. She screams. Then it's time for a smash cut to the face of John Travolta, chuckling to himself in a screening room, cigarette in mouth, watching and listening to what he describes, and we hear as a, quote, terrible scream. We know we're watching a movie. And we're watching characters watching and creating in a movie. It's about creating the fiction or fictions that people will believe. Be it a demented serial killer in a sorority house 
or a governor being killed, whether by accident or not, or another demented serial killer without the goofy ba- face, but instead with the calm veneer of John Lithgow. Off and running we go. De Palma was nothing if not a dark satirist, and Blowout is another in the long line of his commentaries on culture, voyeurism, and what technology can do sometimes when it comes to connecting with others or important situations. There's more than that, of course, but what's impressive in the first minutes of the film is how the filmmaker sets up a kind of meta-textual aspect that people will understand right away, unless they've never seen a movie before. But even then, it's spelled out for them. Movies are fake, not real. They're made up of real people, but they're orchestrated to create the mood. Even for the latest production by the company John Travolta's character, Jack Terry, works for, Co-Ed Frenzy, hence how you know it's a sorority, there is movie magic being created, albeit on a level that is, shall we say, exploitative. The producer Jack Terry works for looks to hear the scream and asks the sound mixer working the board to lower every sound except for the scream. Lo and behold, it's just as bad if not worse than the first time. On a side note, something that I thought of on my fifth viewing, and sadly it took that long to recognize it, the sound of the scream would be nigh impossible to mix with the shower going on, unless the girl was screaming with the shower off. It's one of those several suspension of disbelief moments that has to come, especially for someone like myself who has been on several movie sets and deals with sound recording live, but I digress. It's hard to think of someone like De Palma coming off a streak of films like Sisters, Carrie, Phantom of the Paradise, Obsession, The Fury, and Dressed to Kill wasn't aware of a certain horror thriller reputation. Indeed, Dressed was something of a notorious effort when it came out due to its graphic violence, trimmed down from an X, and how it depicted the reveal of the serial killer in that situation. And yet there is satire being played on more than one level in the course of events of Blowout. It's just the sort of thing that, naturally, one may not fully grasp on a first viewing. Or perhaps you do, but you just don't realize it until you dig into a cinema immersion tank situation and see the same story turns over and over. In brief, Blowout is about what happens when Jack Terry, recording sounds on a bridge late at night for his movie, witnesses a car blow out its tire and fall into the river. He saves the girl that was still alive in the car and gets caught up in a conspiracy involving what he knows he heard on tape, a gun shooting out the tire instead of a simple skid. And everyone thinks this is just an accident. De Palma's playing out not just on JFK conspiracies. The Abe's a Brewer film gets name-checked at one point by a character, coincidentally the one played by Dennis Franz, who happens to be taking pictures of the wreck as it happens, but Ted Kennedy and the Chappaquiddick act. So what does that have to do with Terry working at an exploitation movie company, the likes of which feature movie posters on the walls, such as Lure of the Triangle, not a real title, as <laughs> far as I can find, and features a boat lodged in the illustration of a woman's area under a bikini and Empire of the Ants, a real title. More than you'd think on a first glance, though it works, again, on multiple levels. On the one hand, it's fun in the sort of pulp novel narrative way that the main character works for a company that turns out junk and the character knows it well. If this somehow was set in the 1940s, he might work for a trashy magazine. And that there's a good reason for the character to have all this equipment at his disposal. It simply works for the story that's being told. But on the other hand, the whole movie is working on the level of what it means to make a movie, to put together images and sound to create a new narrative, 
and what those narratives mean when juxtaposed, especially when it involves, are you ready for it? Murder. Curiously, Brian De Palma was once quoted as saying, In any kind of art form, you're creating an illusion for the audience to look at reality in your, through your special eye. Camera lies all the time. Lies 24 times a second. <laughs> this, by the way, was a play on Jean-Luc Godard's axiom, cinema is truth 24 times a second. And both refer to the fact that 24 frames per second is how we are seeing the images projected when we're at a movie or watching mostly on televisions. So on the one hand, you have co-ed frenzy. And while we see the opening segment at the start of the film and a couple extra times, the woman screaming in the shower for testing the new scream, we know this is what the whole movie is going to be like. Trashy, pulpy, full of blood and tits and girls dancing to disco and the kinds of things that made Siskel and Ebert mad for a short time in the early 80s. It's a direct spoof on the conventions that some seem to love. But on the other hand, what does that say about people being desensitized to actual violence? Or are the two even equatable? A major element in the film is the fact that before Jack Terry can get his live audio recording of the gunshot going through the tire, Dennis Franz's sleazy photographer Manny Carp sells his photographs to the local magazines and papers. People don't care so much about how in this society as the simple results. Here's the car going splash into the river. Yet from this, Terry, with his obsession with the recording growing steadily, cuts out all the pictures, photographs them shot by shot with a little Bolex 16mm camera, and creates a visual aid for his audio, in the clearest allusion to Antonioni's blow-up, along with replaying of the audio being aligned with Coppola's The Conversation. Now we have filmmaking, but on that sort of immediate documentary-come-detective level. And just before he takes these shots, something even more primitive. He has the cutouts of the photos and flips them, like a kid might do when making doodles to create a form of animation. In other words, the power and genius of Blowout is using the backdrop of post-Kennedy, who gives a shit, but hey, I care, societal malaise, and exploitation violence in the scope of conspiracy thriller. The story couldn't quite work without the two together. Jack Terry's profession makes him already adept and capable of putting together and being attuned to a higher degree than the average Joe to what a sound or an image is capable of communicating, and his background is drawn with just enough information to show where his drive for truth and justice reside. He helped a commission to investigate dirty cops, for which he wired up people to get dirt, though in the flashback we see it didn't go too well. We don't need a full-life story on the guy, only what needs to be said— Travolta can show the rest in what is arguably his best dramatic work as an actor. And the final minute of this movie, there's a gigantic twist that is so perverse and dangerous and twisted, I, I still can't wrap my mind around it, even after five viewings. De Palma started his career with straight-up political satire in movies like Greetings and Hi Mom, where he was skewing a certain mindset with people involving Vietnam and social political consciousness. The segment I always remember from Hi Mom is when a black woman interviews people on the street, all white and asks them if they know what it's like to be black in America. Um, it was in your face stuff and there are traces of it here, but not so much on a level that confronts the audience so directly. There were parts in high mom that would make anyone squirm black or white, or perhaps there is a directness, but it's more about the sense that by 1980, 1981, right as Carter was leaving and Reagan swinging through the doors with that big actor thing out, People just wanted to be comforted and not given bad news or things to shake them up. 
This isn't to say that people haven't always loved Scandal. And each time watching Blowout, I know it's a basic enough setup. We know politicians flirt and cheat around today and then some. It's almost expected in some quarters. But at the same time, it wasn't something that necessarily got out into wide circulation back then. It was with the Kennedys, JFK and to an extent RFK with Marilyn Monroe, and Ted Kennedy with the girl who died in the car accident, that the public's consciousness grew regarding notion that politicians cheat on their wives. In a way, De Palma may be suggesting when Jack gives into the late Governor McRyan's chief of staff, friend Lawrence Henry, to not tell people about the woman he pulled from the car, it's all over from there. He's given in to pull a small lie to save the governor's family from embarrassment. As Henry says, who gives a damn if you were there? From then on, it's about what Jack knows and has to work his way up to prove to others, whether it's the cop in charge of the case and who gives less than a damn about that, or the news reporter Donahue, who seems to be mis- who seems to mysteriously know about it, as reporters in n- real life and movies find out, I guess. The poem is playing on taboo in a way to leap off from. There's even the pictures of Sally that Jack sees at one point. The point being is that the satire isn't even necessarily with the politicians so much as how the conspiracy unwinds itself. De Palma is in thriller mode here more so than making a statement. At least at first he is. But let's get to that in just a moment. Experiencing blowout so many times, I got to sink in deep into the themes of distrust and paranoia that this filmmaker was soaking in. And to watch a film by this director at this point in his career, wedged between uh, Dress to Kill and right before Scarface, you see him at full throttle. You're being submerged into a real, quote, cinematic experience, with allusions to Hitchcock, both subtle, the aspect of a killer's sort of tick with the watch that John Lithgow carries, and unwinds back and forth, a slight apparel MacGuffin, if that makes sense, and grandiose, a character going through a repeat of a devastating loss which is less an echo than a direct reference to Vertigo. Part of De Palma's satire is with his visual cues. When Travolta is on the bridge, in the space between when he hears that watch sound, which is an odd thing that is hard to place on first listen, and the oncoming car, there's an owl. It's one of the several split diopter shots, and to be exact, I counted 12 through the whole movie, so that you know I watched it that many times. This is a technique, and for De Palma, it's a way of trying to create uh, what's called a deep focus or a full image. Think Citizen Kane shots, for example. And by splitting the lens in half in order to have both subjects from far apart distances in focus, we see Travolta at first in a wide on the left side and an owl in close-up. And I put in parentheses, you know, you're getting deep into the tank, as it were, when you write down in your notes, the owl, what does it mean? (laughs) He's playing with the audience while also creating a simply cool image or images. However, the split diopter is most used uh, to either juxtapose characters, i.e. Jack in full profile as he listens in the hospital to Lawrence Henry talking with a cop about the guy who pulled the girl from the car on the right, or to create some initial suspense. So a photo of of Sally in one of her designed poses the killer looks at in close-up while seeing on the left side a figure with the same hair and dress going down an escalator. In other words, we know we're watching a movie in that way where it's not meant to be an invisible sort of presentation. Far from it, as De Palma wants us to know we're watching a movie through the longer-than-usual takes without a cut, 
big crane movement, sometimes from one spot to another, like when Lithgow is doing his first crime and it puts up to street level to show the real Sally. And a few indelible moments. It's not only about what a character like Jack, our hero, creates his own movie out of picture and sound. It's that we're watching and knowing we're watching a filmmaker creating sound and visuals for us and sometimes par for the course with De Palma about fallen characters. But the appeal of the film is more than thinking about the themes or things on an intellectual, metatextual, critical analysis level. If it were just that, it might get dull. We got stars here, since this is ultimately a production meant for mass Hollywood entertainment, albeit originally, according to De Palma on the Criterion DVD Extra, he originally envisioned it as a small, low-budget production, and not knowing who he wanted, though on IMDb it says Al Pacino was first considered, uh, on that level, every time I've watched the movie, a constant joy is seeing Travolta and Nancy Allen on screen. Travolta is charming without having to put on an air a la disco or grease, and Nancy Allen gets to be a character who isn't always, frankly, portrayed as the brightest, but isn't necessarily a dummy. And we are constantly rooting for her alongside Jack. They're both pawns and or victims of this operation involving taking out the governor, and the characters are given just enough time together to connect, and yet not so much that they become lovers, which I can picture might have happened if a hackier writer had been involved. Um... So on the, on the flip side of enjoying seeing these two megastars play off each other, every time I watched John Lithgow as the villain, Burke, I knew with each viewing this is one of those awesome villains in modern movies. What marks him as being interesting is that he isn't necessarily some perfect robot from the get-go. Burke sets the whole chain of events in the story by shooting out the tire. You know, he says, I didn't mean to kill him, it was an accident. And he says this in some clearly written exposition dump to the political operative he was working for and on the phone he acts like he never wanted to know in the first place Lithgow always plays it super cool and icy whether it's pressing emotion or most likely drained of it in that no country for old men Anton Chigurh sense it's chilling work that's hypnotic to watch his character was one of the things that opened up for me on subsequent viewings at first his killing the girl walking around the first killing in the movie that he does, seemed like he was a soulless person. But the whole sequence plays out logically, and Burke realizes that he must do purely without a word doing spoken. Uh, he rolls down a small hill into a construction site with the woman he's just killed, and it's revealed it's not the one he meant to take. If only for a moment you could see Lithgow play something like disappointment, frustration, <laughs> close to that, and then he looks to his left up at a billboard for the Liberty Bell. And previously, this is set up in the opening credits on the TV newscast. There'll be a big Liberty Bell celebration. And he gets the idea right there. Carve the Liberty Bell, make it into a series of sex killings, and throw off the sense that somebody has been killed connected to something, quote, quote, else. This may be warped logic to some in the audience, but to Burke it makes perfect sense, and thus we follow this along. While we only see one other uh, killing take place before the climax involving a working girl at the train station who Burke takes out in the bathroom stall, it's easy to assume he has killed other girls in this time. And sure, three is enough to make it a ser series of killings, no? But the point is that Burke does screw up at first, and reveals himself to be something of a psychopath with a disconnect to things like reality when on a phone call with his superior. He didn't really believe the parameters set for him, uh, and thought he could go past them in taking McRyan out of the election. 
well, the objective was achieved, he says, not as an excuse, more as one of those stone-cold facts that is said and can't be refuted. What this sets up, at least for me, is the sense of unpredictability that the audience may or may not pick up on first viewing. This is a bloodless, to put it lightly, sociopathic being who is still, underneath it all, human and capable of error. So that even as he goes forward with his plans, erase all of Jack's tapes, go after the girl, tap phone lines and connections, set up a fake meeting, as if he's Donahue, things could potentially go wrong for him. If he was perfect, there would be a lack of suspense. And if it's too sloppy, it would be questionable as to why he gets away with so much. And aside from these three main characters, uh, you know, plus Dennis Franz's carp and his fun over-the-top scenes drenched with pulp noir dialogue and even production design in the CD hotel room that ends with him being knocked out after trying to have his way with Sally in such a way that is rather bizarre in subsequent viewings. We never know if he's just unconscious or dead and is sprawled out in a no-kidding Jesus Christ pose. Um, there's, as mentioned, the technical pleasures of seeing virtuoso camera movements um and you know it's in that they're so bold and they work because de palma and the late cinematographer vilmos zygmunt aren't afraid to go for them um now one such example is when travolta discovers to his horror that all of his tapes have been erased and the camera circles the space of the room six times this might be one of those set pieces you really remember after watching this movie. And I also counted it. It was six times. Don't question me on that. Uh, leading to him being called by the cop and being told his tape has been erased. This scene is amped up by the repetition and the quickening movement of the revolutions of the camera, but also by the mounting pressure from the audio. Different tapes uh, playing nothing with equal unsound and fury, which builds like the opening track from Dark Side of the Moon. Another much larger and operatic example is with the climax and how, in the midst of this great, massive gathering to celebrate fireworks, not July 4th, but might as well be, Jack has to go after Burke after he takes Sally to be slaughtered, and in her final cry for help, her backdrop is the American flag. Jack, of course, set against people dressed in their revolutionary war garb, and everyone not giving a damn is fun and excitement all around them. This is one of those climaxes that, no matter how many times I see it, it works. And parts due to the music, Pio Dionagio's ridiculously overwrought score matches the overwrought narrative to a point where it ceases to recognize the top it's gone over as it finds new terrain to conquer. The colors are vibrant and heightened, like an Argento Suspiria, only in full-on USA, USA modus operandi. And it all leads up to Travolta cradling the deceased Nancy Allen in his arms, with fireworks all around him. You either feel and go for this level of volcanic, cinematic, auteur manipulation by a color and sound in opera, or you don't. I do, and yet the magic of it doesn't cease. If anything, the climax helps to offset some of the smaller problems that arise in the narrative. Of course, this isn't to say questions don't get raised in the process of seeing the same story and scenes going by five times in a row. In fact, there was a small part of me that lamented watching this film so many times, as it opened up not so much plot holes as logical questions, which may feed into plot holes depending on your point of view. There are elements that you don't really put much stock into, or at least many who admire the film so much, on a first or even second viewing experience, but they are there to greater or lesser degree. Of course, one has to take into context uh, 
into take context into account. And this is where things may get slippery or who cares for some out there. By that meaning, De Palma means to set up a time and place, the present of that era, when people in authority didn't want to hear things like conspiracy. Also, in the context of the story, Jack's not particularly liked for Philadelphia cops due his past with the commission that he was a part of. But some questions got raised about common sense things with details in such a case as McRyan's accident. One, taking aside the fact that McRyan's car had submerged so quickly that same night and brought to the garage that we can all look past hopefully we are led to believe in the middle of the night as burke's introduction in the film mostly without seeing his full face that he gets in and removes the shot out tire and replaces with a fresh one why wouldn't the cops or whatever crew brought the car out from the river see immediately that the tire had been shot through it wouldn't pictures be taken of the evidence of the crime scene? Certainly they had to, you know, take out the governor from the wrecked car. One can buy that no one would have too close a watch or surveillance in 1980, but would somebody, anyone, forget the head of the case who doesn't give a damn, see the tire is brand spanking new on the car? Or did Burke put on a tire that had a blowout, but not of the gunshot through its sense? Two... Uh, Jack takes out a roll of 16mm Bullex film in regular bright right. Now, this would normally make the film unwatchable. You have to pull out film in a dark space so the film doesn't become exposed in raw bright light. But then this is one of those technical things I only get bothered by as a filmmaker, who once upon a time worked with this very camera and film. So this should get past for most, maybe. Let's see if you spot like I did. Three. Jack makes copies, or at least one, perhaps more, of the blah audio, and leaves it at work while putting his master copies in the space above his ceiling as apartment. Why not leave one or two extras along with his master? Suffice it to say, he doesn't trust keeping just keeping his master 16mm film and original audio out in the open of his apartment, so why trust it at work? Of course, who could guess some nut would go in to his recording space and erase all of his work, of course. But maybe, which leads to number four. Before the whole first part of the climax where Jack takes Sally to the station to supposedly meet with Donahue, where it turns out to be Burke, he says he'll make an extra copy of the blah audio. He doesn't have time to do the same with the original carp film. So, does this just disappear for him? Is the loss of Sally so great he just drops any plans completely one would also assume also that to be sure this adds to the tragedy and twisted sensibility at the very end but it still seems to reason he could take this somewhere else so all hope is not lost which means which leads me to a logic point number five what about the fbi does this never pop up into question i went back and forth on this point from viewing to viewing on the one hand, perhaps the FBI would give less of a damn about the one Philadelphia cop. It's been called an accident. The commission's assigned says so. Pattern, I'm sure, not intentionally on the Warren Commission with the standard Oswald was alone conclusion. But on the other hand, they're the FBI and might have something of a passing interest in the death of a sitting governor of the United States of America. Or what about the CIA? I may be reaching on this point, and... On one viewing, I just left it alone with the thought, hey, it's a Pulp Fiction piece after all. 
Uh, it's not about really going beyond the cop and the governor's people. They might deny it, and besides, it's more fun keeping it to the smaller, more concentrated, effed-up group of characters, but... Yeah. Six. Though it would have made the uh, the very end not work, I thought once or twice that the hapless director, producer Sam, went through the failed auditions... They could have found someone over the course of the days, or is it weeks, to scream. They find nobody. Number seven. Why wouldn't the cop questioning Jack initially ask for his audio recording, whether he knew it had any pertinent information or not? Isn't it evidence? He probably doesn't know about his past with the commission at that point, but it sounds like typical police procedure anyway. Lucky that, of course, since there wouldn't be a plot or sequence showing Jack listening again. From his from the, his from his point of view, it's so paramount of the small things like a couple on a walkway, frog, watch, owl, tires of the car, leading up to the shot and the blowout. Number eight, we hear Burke say June the sixth, as far as the conversation about ta- taking out McRyan. How soon is this election? Who cares, right? Except, why is Jack sitting out in the snow at the end? It makes for a hell of a dramatic shot, especially with the music, but. How soon or long after the climax is this happening? Didn't Sam say he needed the audio very soon? Is it summer or fall? Perhaps it's fall, hence it's time for the election to come, but if so, why the long wait to bring the good scream? And aren't fireworks usually in the summer? Hmm. 9. In the Freddy Corso flashback, the man is hung in the bathroom a little bit too quickly for logic to really take hold of. Maybe dangling and near death, yes, but not quite that dead already when Jack discovers him. And finally, number 10. Why doesn't Jack go inside the station with Sally? This is one of those things, logically, when it comes to a regular thriller, you have to let it go. But it bothered me on the third and fourth viewings. By the fifth one, I was just focusing more on elements like music and performance and composition and let it go. I think it wasn't so much that he didn't accompany her right by her side, rather that he stayed inside the car. To be sure, again, this is simply one of those things in movies. It goes back, I'm sure, to Palmino's with his ideal of the master of visual grammar, as he called it with Hitchcock, that you don't think too much about it, that Jack has to take it on faith that Donahue is there and will go through, but he isn't who he is. If that's the case, though, as Jack by this point has met and spoken with Donahue more than once, wouldn't he know right away by voice it's not the same guy? Jack waits till Burke says, I think we're being followed to Sally, but he says things on tape first. And yet, as mentioned, I should let this go for the simple reason that if Jack was inside the station, he'd catch up with them and there wouldn't be any suspense as to where they are in the subway area or, of course, that incredible drive through downtown Philly. But it's worth mentioning. And now, but how about instead of nitpicking some fun facts? Number one, the movie that Carp is watching on his sleazy apartment is from De Palma's first solo-directed film, Murder a la Mode. Two, having Jack hear very clearly things around him in the hospital in those moments before he's taken aside by Henry establishes with clarity that he's already skilled with listening and picking out details. If he was a superhero, perhaps it'd be called The Microphone, but it's probably taken somewhere, but I digress. Number three. On the first viewing, I wondered if the full flashback to Jack dealing with the Freddy Corso case was necessary. But two things occurred when watching it the other four times. First, that yes, we need to see Jack going through this terrible ordeal. 
his first major failure and what made him kind of slip off more from a recent from a more honest profession into the world of quote bad movies as he says and secondly because of the film history that inspired as some of you may or may not know blowout was and is cited by quentin tarantino as one of his favorite films of all time and it was from this film that he decided that travolta could pull off vincent vega in pulp fiction and even tailor the part for him one may not think right away after seeing Jack Terry has much in common with Vega, who is a killer and not always with the best luck on his side, be it Marvin or Mia Wallace. Notice in the whole Mia Wallace date night segment of Pulp Fiction what Travolta is wearing. He has a trench coat, white shirt and tie, and even how his hair looks, how he says, oh, Jesus Christ. This is, I promise you, to a T, how Jack Terry acts and looks when he sees the hanged man in the bathroom in Blowout. It's no accident, I have to assume, seeing as how Tarantino often visually quotes and references not just movie scenes and lines, but full character dress, i.e. Game of Death and Kill Bill. I'm not sure if De Palma hadn't made Blowout that we would have seen Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Some of the character moves Tarantino lifts, borrow, steals are there also, like the circular movement around Burke in the phone booth into the circular movement around Butch in the phone booth. But I can assume we wouldn't see Travolta look the same in that whole Mia Wallace chapter, much as Mia Wallace wouldn't have the haircut like Anna Karina and the Godard films. Four, Americana is in full force when Jack crashes his car in the parade. He misses hitting anyone, got to keep him, you know, he has to keep the audience on his side, of course, but he crashes through some glass into a display of the Liberty Bell. Five, we're never told McRyan's political party. Just as well, honestly. Part of De Palma's point may be it could be anyone. Democrat, Kennedy, Republican, Nixon. The lack of trust is beyond party lines, though I must admit my wife thought he was a Republican. <laughs> Number six, notice how, many, how Manny Carp is talking to himself in his, pal, in his place before Sally shows up the first time. He's putting on his own kind of act, whether it's to be, in his own mind, charming, or to make sure he doesn't slip up any key information too early. A nice touch, and Franz plays it perfectly. 7. I wondered for a moment if when De Palma's shooting from outside and zooming into Jack's apartment as he puts away tapes above his ceiling space, if this was meant to be a paranoid touch. Like, who may be watching this? But it's never followed up on leading the suspense to weaken on multiple viewings. Though it's a decent shot, I, perhaps ironically in a film loaded with show-stopping shots, the most unnecessarily showy. Eight. On one of the viewings, I think the third one, I started to feel nauseous during the circular tapes erased discovery shot. Nine. That final ending. When one realizes clearly that Jack takes Sally's final scream and places it into the scream of the murdered co-ed in the shower... That's the big shocker twist of the film, the cherry on top of the sundae, and yet it's one of the principal elements that works differently every time I see it. The first time it's, oh my god, really? Second time it's, I'm noticing the music here. It's now somber at first, then it builds up in the strings as Travolta covers his ears. Third time, wow, Travolta is really sweaty here. And are we meant to think Jack is just, I don't give a shit territory here anymore? Certainly, he's nervous about it, and he has the sheen of a salamander. Fourth time. This is really sad. He has nothing else in his life and has imparted to the world this, 
and of course everyone will take it for granted. Hence the good scream line. And after all, you know, after we all uh, scream for ice cream as the song goes, and now I'm rambling as the credits go. Fifth time. This is also kind of funny in a very twisted, sick way. It's like, look upon my works, ye mighty and despair. <laughs> the uh, a la Ozymandias or something, where art has been created in the midst of total crap as the only way that the truth can get out there, not unlike, speaking of Ozymandias, the giant squid in Watchmen. Um, so, the ending of the film also works simply as well as a storyteller will work with a solid story, which is what makes things both complicated and totally sensible. In screenwriting class, I was taught the concept of the central question, of something that the character has to face, and by the end will either face it or not, but it has to be addressed. In Blowout, Jack has to get the right scream to replace the lame scream currently in place. Can he get it? By the end? Yes, he does. It wraps everything up neat and tidy. But at what cost and what had the characters, or in this case, just gone through? It confronts the viewer with something that some viewers, I'm sure there are one or two out there, if not many, who might be pissed at that. Like, that's it? But what one comes away with in Blowout, in all, is that if the world is going to be so hopeless, if one can't rely on authorities to protect us or for people in power to do the right things with information, then why carp? No pun intended. Uh, I'm thinking of the character carp, but best not explain it. Some of the great filmmakers in the past, by the way, as once noted by Scorsese in his personal journey through American movies doc, where De Palma gave his film lies quote, by the way, as smugglers, filmmakers who somehow snuck through certain ideas or artistic statements into films that otherwise were seen as standard genre pieces or programmers for studios. By the end of De Palma's great film, Jack Terry becomes a master smuggler, using his lack of giving a damn or any degree of recognition that the world makes sense or has any empathy into, well, art, or as close to it as he can get in the world of bad movies. What is a bad movie anyway, if you can get such a good scream? So that is Blowout, the first movie in the cinematic immersion tank. Um, <laughs> so if you saw Blowout, if you have any thoughts about it, please give us an email. Uh, we have an uh, email at wagesofcinema at gmail.com. Shoot us a message uh, at uh, Facebook, uh, Wages of Cinema Podcast. We've also posted a couple of videos. Uh, Criterion did a fun three, three, three reasons why you should watch Blowout. Um, or just check out Brian De Palma interviews because he's a fascinating guy. And, uh, um, and that's it for this episode. When we come back, uh, we'll be talking about a couple of major people we've lost this week. So 